Hello there and welcome to another uh, Coffee and Concepts. Uh, it's been a couple of months since we've done this, uh, kind of shifting things around a little bit. As you know, uh, the structure now is we're going to have something every Sunday and there's going to be a seminar, then a conversation the next week that's kind of loosely around a theme within that seminar, then this Coffee and Concepts that will take up one of the elements of the seminar and then another conversation so people can jump in and out of any of those as much or as little as they want. Um, and it's a good way of kind of going deeper into issues. So it's not just jumping around from one seminar to another. You get a whole month where to some extent we're revolving around a similar theme, um, uh, which, you know, and we, we, share, we, we revolve around a similar theme anyway over the course of um, uh, the year and whatever. So everything will hopefully feel like it's, it's linking in in some sort of way. So what I want to do now, Coffee and Concepts is basically me talking for about 20 minutes. Then we have about 40 minutes of conversation. Um, I'll finish it up. You know, after 60 minutes, if, if there's energy in the conversation, we might go 10 to 15 longer, uh, but that will be it. And people can jump in and out, say, turn off your camera, or just leave anytime you need to. Um, what I wanted to do is talk briefly about this notion of trauma and try to give kind of like a, a theoretical understanding of what that word means um, and then connect it with, with the work of radical theology and parotheology, and then we'll open it up from there. So at the very beginning, I guess I want to start by talking about this notion of the real, which we've talked about before. It's very central to my work. It's been central to my work from day one, really, um, which is basically um, the, uh, I'm just, sorry, changing my screen here. Um, yeah, so the concept of the real, which is very difficult to define, but broadly speaking, the best way to start thinking about it is the real is whatever escapes reality. So it is, uh, you know, paradoxically, it's almost like the opposite of what is real. If we think of what is real as things like this coffee cup and the, the other things that are populate this room, the real is that which is, um, which escapes any type of grasp or symbolization or representation. And interestingly, like there are people who don't believe in nothing right there's a lot of people who go this concept of the real of some dimension of reality that is not reducible to materiality is is ridiculous right and uh, you get a lot of you know certain analytic philosophers think that certain psychologists neuroscientists certain kind of like um uh there's a certain form of scientific thought that again um doesn't have any truck for this notion of the real but um, there is another uh, tradition or set of traditions, continental philosophy, theology, psychoanalysis, phenomenology, existentialism, that, that do um, have a real place in a lot of sciences, a lot of mathematics, a lot of physics that, that is interested in this, in this dimension that is not reducible to materiality. So the real is, is that it's a kind of rock that you can never grasp that, but that um, but that is there. Um, and the name for that real in different disciplines is different. So there is the real of mathematics and there's the real in physics and there's the real in democracy. And they have different kind of ways of naming this and talking about it and measuring it. But the real um, in terms of psychoanalysis is uh, trauma. 
trauma is a type of event that saturates you, that, that is unspeakable, that um, your words distort around, that you can't directly access. Now, one of the things about trauma then is it's not necessarily, it's not a bad or a good thing in itself. In fact, in, in psychoanalysis, trauma is central to being human. And there's like what's called a primary trauma or primary repression. So which is, so trauma is what we are. There is a dimension of being human that is unspeakable that we cannot grasp. Um, but then there are also traumas. There are also events that happen um, that we cannot speak, which are fine. They, they define our desires. Um, they uh, define a lot of how we act in the world, but sometimes they cause problems. And so in psychoanalysis, whenever someone has a fixation or a repetition compulsion, that's a sign of a type of trauma, unspoken event that is cre creating a, repet a repetition, a repetition of behavior that is maybe damaging and destructive to the individual. And so often they come to analysis. So someone comes to analysis because they say, I'm fixated on a person. I can't get over them. Or I keep, I keep repeating the same pattern in my life that is damaging to me, that I find destructive. Um, and then the analyst can you know, starts to work out that there's something unspoken that needs to be hit upon. In fact, Lacan interestingly says the difference between the, the real of physics and the real of psychoanalysis is in physics, you're not trying to change the real, you're just trying to measure it, right? Whenever, whenever in physics, you're doing experiments in relation to uh, kind of like a subatomic particle, particles you're not trying to change reality you're trying to observe reality you're trying to kind of like measure something uh, in psychoanalysis uh, you're actually trying to change the real sometimes you're trying to kind of like hit on some sort of trauma so that you can kind of uh get the person jump started again you know uh, and so uh, a good example of this is many of you might know or be someone who tells the same story over and over again Right. So I know someone who for 30 years, they, they keep coming back to the same story, the same story of uh, some childhood thing their sister did, something about the death of a, of a pet. Right. I think it was the death of a rabbit or something that her sister blamed on her or whatever. But this story continues to repeat. It keeps coming back. And so it's strange. It's like, why is a story like you can't move away from it? You can't move forward from it. Um, well, that's the evidence right, that there's something, a fixation, something is stuck. And in psychoanalysis, obviously the analyst might want to look at how do we get that unstuck? So you start telling different stories, if not for your own sake, then for the sake of people you love, right? Um, who might want to hear a different story around the dinner table. Um, and, and what might happen is if you get unstuck, the next story you tell might have the same structure. It might be about an injustice that you saw happen to a friend of yours and you're telling that story or an injustice that you see in the world that you want to fix. So it's, it, the stories that you're telling are, are structurally connected to some sort of trauma that was there when you were young, but now the, the discourse is being what's called dialecticized. So it's moving and now you can kind of like, um, you're not fixated and uh, it can, hopefully be more beneficial in your life. Okay, so, so trauma is a name for a type of real, a type of unspoken dimension within us that distorts us, that, um, uh, that we revolve around, but we cannot speak. 
Um, and I want to try and de demystify this a little bit more um, uh, by talking about a while back, many of us did a, um, uh, a reading group on a Levi Strauss article from Structural Anthropology about the structure of myth. And just to summarize that very quickly, Levi Strauss argued that there is a structure to all myths that you can discover. And all myths in their complexity, in their maturity, have, have the same basic structure. And it's called, he calls it the, the double twist um, or the canonical formula, but he says there's a double twist. And what it is, is all myths are trying to work out a contradiction. What you will discover whenever you break them down to their constituent parts. And he knew more myths than anybody else in the world, probably to this day, right? Hundreds of myths in his books. Like uh, he knew myths all across the world. Um, he said, when you break them down, you'll find a contradiction, something about, are we born of the gods? Or are we born of the earth? Or is the universe unending or does it have a beginning? Right? There's some sort of contradiction that you find. And then the, the, the myth will try to uh, twist that contradiction, um, play with it. Uh, and eventually it does what's called a double twist where the contradiction that, was, that originally animated the myth becomes interwoven with the myth. So at first the, the myth is trying to overcome a contradiction, but then it kind of finds a way to weave the contradiction into its very heart. So that's what the essay is about. So canonical essay, very, very interesting essay. But um, he also, by the way, argues that this is not just primitive thought, right? That you find in some sort of tribal community. This is the same thinking that you find in scientific thought. There's a contradiction, an antagonism, one tries to overcome the antagonism, the contradiction, and eventually, um, as science develops, you find that a contradiction then is, is then woven into the narrative itself. And I've talked about that before. Um, this is kind of what Lacan is talking about when he comes to trauma. He says, this is what trauma is. Trauma is not something that's real that's outside of reality, right? I mean, God is one of the names for the real. Obviously, in theology, God is the name for the real. Um, it, but whenever Lacan talks about trauma, he's saying, right, there's something of this real that is within the world and within us. And he uses shapes to try to explain this. And this is the part of Lacan, which is always very difficult. But um, I'm writing a book at the moment, and I'm working on this, these Lacanian shapes and formulas, very fun. And he, um, he takes, uh, if you take like a, a strip of paper, and you, and you join the ends of the strip of paper, you make a band, right? So a little strip of paper, you join it, it makes a little band. Um, that could be called, right, the position one. And then the can takes that band, opens it up, twists it once, relinks it, and you've now got a Mobius strip. A Mobius strip is a more complicated shape because it's now not got two sides, it's got one side at any discrete moment the Mobius strip has two sides, but if you roll your finger around the Mobius strip, you'll find that you don't ever have to take your finger off the strip and you'll go on both sides, right? So this, this one continuous side. So there's the band, which has got two sides, then the Mobius strip that has one side through this twist, but at any discrete moment, there's two. So already you see, like if you think of the band as um, a thesis and antithesis, as two positions that are opposite, the twist of the Mobius strip then 
these two seemingly opposed positions kind of seem to somehow also interweave with each other. And then Lacan adds a third twist and you create what's called a torus, which I think if you just basically twist the Mobius strip more, it becomes like a donut. It becomes a, um, yeah, a donut shape, a torus shape. Um, and this is kind of like a third kind of, a, kind of shape that, 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 that kind of is the third move, right? If there's the, the, the opposition and then there's the, this twist, then this other twist kind of like complicates it even more. And then you come to the fourth shape. And the fourth shape is called the cross cap. And it's where you twist one more time. But here's the crazy thing about the cross cap is you can't make it. It's symbolically, mathematically true, uh, but it can't be represented. Um, it needs another dimension that doesn't exist, right? So you literally can't make the cross cap. You can't do this, this double twist, uh, but it actually is, but it's, it's, not an unpod, it's not a square triangle or anything like that. It's a real shape that just cannot be represented, cannot be imagined. And Lacan basically says, well, that's, that's kind of what trauma is. It's a, it's a twist of contradiction within us that we can never grasp, conceptualize, um, imagine, but it's real. And that's why it's real, they're real. It's real, just can't be imagined or grasped. Um, Okay, I know that's all a bit uh, abstract, but I want to kind of bring it to your head. Um, as I mentioned, the psychoanalysis, oh yeah, somebody mentions the Klein bottle. Yes, the Klein bottle is the other shape that, that Lacan uses a lot, which is the same thing. It's a, it's a, a real shape that can't be made, mm. that kind of falls in on itself. Um, so Lacan and his work, um, uh, on sexuation, actually, I mean, he does this fascinating work on this, these double twists, which he's really borrowing from, from Claude Levi-Strauss. Uh, these, these twists, yeah, I'll say one more thing about it, is they, they arise out of the symbolic and a failure of it. So it's not, like, it's not like trauma predates us for Lacan. It's like when we become creatures of language, language itself creates these binds, these negations that occur within us that we have to tarry with that really are a dimension of us that we can never get away from that's the other reason why the word real is really good like the word real is a brilliant name for this because it's naming basically the thing that makes you who you are you could cut off my arm and i would still be me now you could make me blind i'd still be me but if you took away the, the my trauma the, the 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 lack i would not exist i would not be it's something that, and, and it's the thing that is, that is, that preserves and perseveres. It's the most real thing of all, even though you can't at, in any way conceptualize it like the cross cap or the Klein ball. And in psychoanalysis, as I say, it's about hitting the real. Um, you see the real by the distortions of language, hence um, Freudian slips. I, a friend of mine did a great Freudian slip the other day. She uh, talked to somebody about, she was saying, did you get my vice messages? And um, I thought it was brilliant. She meant voice messages, but there was something in those messages that even though they were innocent messages, that well, there was an illicit desire within them. And so <laughs> she said that she was sending to this person, you know, oh, did you get my vice messages, which was 
which kind of kind of lends itself to go, oh, there's something that's being spoken in those messages that um, is not being directly acknowledged by any party, but that is animating those messages. So I thought, I thought it was a very good, I love these Freudian slips. And when you listen for them, they're amazing. So vice messages, of course, they may have just been making a mistake, but it, uh, it did lead to some interesting um, interpretations. Um, so, uh, and I mentioned, yes, someone telling the same story or a fixation or something like that. Okay, so is there anything we can do with this reel? Well, here's the thing that Lacan says is that we can signify it. Uh, he talks about what's called the signifier of the lack of the big other. I'm going to explain what that means. If, it, if it's the formula is an is a S brackets capital A with a slash through it and close brackets, right? Now, and that means signifier of the absence of the big other. And what Lacan means by that is he says, one can in one's life, when you're going to therapy, at first you're trying to overcome contradictions in your life. You're trying to get over fixations. You're trying to get your life out of its distortions. You're trying to get it back on the rails in some way. You're trying to get rid of anxiety, rid of panic attacks. You might be trying to get rid of the question, what does the other want from me? Right, Whatever it is, right? You're, you're there in therapy. You want to get rid of the contradiction. And there's a certain point when, you know, for, for someone who's neurotic or whatever, where you can directly enjoy the contradiction. You can directly find a way to make it work for you, for it to no longer be oppressive and to lead to negative consequences. Now, the easiest way for me to explain this is with Christianity. Christianity, what is the signifier of the lack of the big other in Christianity? Now, drum roll, uh, if you've been following my work for a while, some of you might get this. The signifier of the lack of the big other is Jesus Christ, right? Christ, um, the death of God. So the, de the term death of God, which I was talking about in the seminar, that's why we're, now we're coming to the, the real content of it. The death of God is a signifier that of lack in the absolute, in reality itself that when you are able to directly say, not I believe in God, but I believe in the death of God, which is what I think Christianity is. Like any religious person can say, I believe in God, that's fine, that's great. But to, to be specifically Christian is to say, I believe in the death of God. And to say, I believe in the death of God, that's what I would argue anyway. That's why, again, I'm always banging on about the difference between pyrotheology and progressivism, but um, you know, progressives believe in God generally, right? That's the thing that they're, they're not, I don't, I don't hear any progressives really talking about the death of God, except maybe the death of Christ in terms of the death of Jesus who died under an unjust system or something like that, but not like the death of God as a theological statement, as a statement of faith. In paratheology, when you say, I believe in the death of God, you are, you are directly signifying the lack in reality itself um and that is that is the salvatory move in parotheology is that when we're part of a community where we can directly identify and enjoy a type of not at oneness of the one and not at oneness of the world this is a fundamentally transformative uh, politically uh, powerful 
culturally um, creative, personally liberating uh, position uh, that will be evidenced in a healthy community, right? And that's what I say to some of my friends who do this type of work, who have got communities that are not very healthy. <laughs> I go like, you're judged by the health of your community, the community that you participate in, that you help to create, that you help to form. And um, so I stand and fall, and we all stand and fall by the, the communities that we're, that we're building. And, and this idea of directly signifying a trauma the trauma of the death of God, a type of lack at the heart of reality that we don't try to avoid, we don't try to overcome, but ultimately like, like Levi-Strauss's double twist formula, where you remember, you know, I said Levi-Strauss, you've got a contradiction has been trying to work out, then there's a first attempt to fix it. And actually that can go on infinitely, right? So you've got this, this position and then this position and then an, an attempt to synthesize and maybe then that becomes a position and another position and an attempt to synthesize. And this attempt to synthesize kind of never, never quite works. And then eventually the double twist happens, the cross cap happens, and the contradiction is woven into reality. Um, that nothingness is part of being. The real is part of our symbolic lives, our imaginary lives. Okay. That was quite deep. And what I, by the way, want to do is I don't want all of these to be heavy. So I'm going to make some of them lighter, but this is a particularly heavy one. So forgive me. And does anybody want to jump in and uh, get the conversation started? See, I, I know this is like the, the softball question, um, but also the quintessential question that no one likes to answer, but is what is it that causes trauma to, and, and I'm thinking more severe trauma, but in general, what is it what causes people to be impacted so differently from one another? Uh, here, by the way, Joe, Joe, you're a therapist. Do you want to say anything about that? Because, you know, as someone who works with trauma or do you not? I don't want to. I, I, throw yeah, I, don't, I don't want to be on the spot and take up all your your space here. I mean, this is this is your spot. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious what, what you have to say about it. I, I actually do EMDR and stuff, too. Oh. um for trauma um so but but how it impacts people differently is, is kind of interesting i'm curious what you what you would say about that actually oh yeah oh yeah i'll jump in i just i just always feel i'm whenever there's a, a practitioners around i always you know get more insecure because i'm like the, i really respect the people who work on this every day with people you know <laughs> um but yeah so uh nicole you're saying yeah how kind of like can we how do we understand how trauma impacts people? Or are you even saying like how something could be traumatic to one person and not to another? Or is that the kind of question? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. See, this is this is what's in this is by the way why Freud said in terms of psychoanalysis, you don't have to worry about what happened or didn't happen when you're talking in therapy, because a trauma can be weirdly, something can happen. Um and that a person doesn't feel tr find traumatizing at all. I know someone who, you know, uh, was sexually assaulted when they were young and it, it was a horrible experience, but it wasn't a traumatizing experience then, but for someone else and for other people, that same experience would have obviously been deeply traumatizing. And also for one child hearing their parents argue it, at a certain moment 
could have been a deeply impacting experience. And the irony is the parents might not have been arguing. They might have been downstairs having a laugh or uh, just having a passionate discussion. But obviously for the child, it, that impacted them in this very deep way. So trauma is, and, it, and it's also retroactively created. That's the interesting thing is often, you know, something happens when you're young and you don't even have words for it. And it's only later on when you start to reconstruct your past that 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 that, that part of that something kind of like um, makes an impact, like becomes something. So almost like you can you can go through your adult life and then something comes up that completely derails you. Um, so the question, but your question is why is. If that, if that, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I will say this. It's like, I, I guess it, with, with Freud, there's, there's, a, there's a trauma that is life and there's a trauma that happens to you in life. So we're all traumatized by life. Life is a, is, is a trauma, but then there's the individual traumas. And then, and yes, just, I think it's like really historical contingency. I know people who... I have a friend whose mother just wasn't able to be there for her. Um, she was too anxious herself, uh, too ridden with panic attacks and too overwhelmed by being a mother. So she wasn't able to give the eye-to-eye -eye contact and, the, and, and to interpret the child's uh, cries and to do all of that kind of early work. And so that is, is what has has marked that person in their adulthood and then what they've had to do is find that uh, in an artificial way that they didn't have as a child um, for someone else it's been sent off to boarding school I mean I kind of always wonder whether it's like that's that's where psychoanalysis is great it's individual histories it's like you're having to try to work out the individual history of the person um, to find out how the trauma individually affects them but I think I'm waffling Nicola does that is that touched your question at all do you want to come back on it no, a little bit yeah i mean I, I think it's a question we're all struggling with so yeah. i was just curious yeah. you know what it makes me think of the elephant and the blind man and how trauma like everything else is kind of um interpreted uh differently amongst people like you look at 9 11 uh people create conspiracies some people think you need to go to war for that some people get patriotic some people hate america so I think the trauma of the death of God leads to different neuroses, and you could call those denominations. Like <laughs> being Pentecostal is one form of neuroses. And I feel like with pyrotheology and death of God theology, you're trying to sort of treat the, the neurosis. It's a, it might be another manifestation of it, but yeah. So would you say it's subjective like that, the real, in a psychological term sense? Yeah, um, and that's, by the way, I love that idea of almost denominations being symptoms of the trauma of the, of the death of God. <laughs> I think there's something really in that, I really like that. Um, and that what we're trying to do is not set up another symptom, another denomination, but rather hit on, 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 on that real in some way. So um, the 9-11 example is very good as well. Like the, the responses to that are very different and will have taken people in different directions, as you say, but they come from the, the same event, that same event that they couldn't signify. 
Um, like obviously the Holocaust Shoah is, is the example of the 20th century in Europe and the world really of an event that can't be symbolized. That feels like it's a hole in the symbolic real. So which if you, if you give a symbolic uh, interpretation to it, it's always offensive. It's like, well, it was a test by God. Um, well, it was because of the sins of the Jewish people. It's like, as soon as you try and give it an interpret and a symbolic narrative to that event, you are like not getting it, that the, the event is, is a type of traumatic um, hole. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I love that description. In terms of the subjective side, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's the most objective part of us. It's, it's a thing that's not, I mean, you could, the reason why I'm hesitating is you can say a trauma is precisely the thing, yeah, we haven't subjectivized. We haven't, uh, we haven't brought it, we've, but it's, um, uh, and obviously, I think it's real in terms of there's a, there's a real dimension to this um, in terms of reality is is divided. Um, it almost like say the subject is the trauma. That's kind of almost like the, what we are as subjects are a type of gap or struggle or not not at oneness of, of reality. Um, I have a question. Go for it, Sean. Hey, good to see you, man. Good to see you. Um, I'm curious. I think we have a sense from what you described of how Freud might treat trauma, right? Which would be sort of uh, more what we consider traditional psychoanalysis. And yet Lacan being a Freudian of sorts, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how Lacan might approach trauma differently treating trauma or addressing trauma either individually or from a cultural standpoint yeah and you do know, this is the what like this comes down to the cure what is the cure and the way Lacan describes it whenever he uses this notion of the signifier of the lack of the big other Lacan is basically saying that not for everyone but for 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 most of us uh, we can directly uh, enjoy and directly find a way of navigating this antagonism. And that's the cure, whenever you're able to do that. And to actually enjoy it, not just tolerate it, not flee it, not tolerate it, but actively enjoy your maladaptation to the world, directly enjoy um, struggle and sacrifice and not having and and even, you know, basically, I've, I love my friend, you know him as well, Phil Harrison, who wrote a book called The First Day. And one of the lines, and I think he took the line out, but I've quoted it a lot, is he says, none of us get what you want. None of us get what we want, but there are better and worse ways of not getting what we want. Right? And that's, that's the trick. It's like, you know, is forget about getting what you want, but that doesn't mean that you just stick with what you've got, which might be a crap relationship or a crap job. What you want is a good way of not getting what you want. <laughs> you there's, there's good ways of not getting what you want. So you can have a healthy, rubbish relationship. Like a relationship where it says, this doesn't work. Isn't that amazing, right? Or there's a relationship where this doesn't work. This is horrific. But th that's almost your, your option. Your best option is this relationship just is impossible. How amazing is that? <laughs> and that's that's a wonderful type of relationship that we all experience at times in our lives and probably just for brief moments, but we, we I think we all know what it is when we feel it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the, I think that's the, whereas Freud, who, who, who opened the way for that, 
I don't think, you know, who's still struggling with potentially just, uh, you know, getting rid of the contradictions or whatever. So I think Lacan really pushed Freud to the limit. And, that, and, that's, yeah. and, that's, yeah, and that's what, that's what parotheology is. That's why I keep going back to is not at an individual level, but for community. As yeah. a community, we directly yeah. identify with Christ, the Christ who experienced the loss of God, God experiencing the loss of God. So we directly uh, weave ourselves into that figure of Christ, which means we directly enjoy the, the absence of God. And that mm. is the presence <clears throat> of God. And, and there is an enjoyment perhaps that happens in the context of community that's not available otherwise, mm. right? Yeah. And when you're, if I could just one more, when you're talking about enjoyment, are you nodding to jouissance again? Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. Good. So, okay, and, good. and to give a good little definition of jouissance, because I've talked about it before, but I always think mm -hmm. I miss, it's hard, I was always hard to describe it. I was rereading a book by Bruce Fink called Lilikanian Subject, and he said it very well. He's a very good writer. But he said, like, jouissance is what excites us. Right, there's things that give us pleasure. Like I'm, I'm enjoying this coffee. Things that give us pleasure. Jouissance excites us. The problem is, what excites us is often not what gives us pleasure, because what excites us we might judge to be bad ourselves internally. We might think that's not a good thing. Um, we might, for, you know, for, let's let's just be kind of crude about it or blunt about it. Is like we may have, you know, you know, our our sexual desire might be evoked by aggression and by mm -hmm humiliation but yet we don't want a society where we humiliate each other and are violent to each other so one sense right. you suddenly go well what excites me as and just gets my desire going and, and makes me enjoy myself is precisely also a, a cutting against my my philosophical view of the world right but we all can kind of like so jouissance is kind of the thing that just gets gets your passion excitement going but often is painful precisely because it um it might go against your your persona and your ideal ego and who you think you are etc cetera, etc cetera. but jouissance we have to have room for jouissance we have to know how to manage jouissance and um uh and that maybe brings us in more complicated but jouissance is where where it's at you know it's like we all have jouissance and, and jouissance primarily is focused not around getting something but around um, I mean, lack, you know, right? what's that? The lack. It's around the lack, yeah. You, yeah. You, if you, falling if, in love, falling in love is. We think it's we think it's great, but it's fucking painful. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the death drive versus the pleasure principle. That's yes. what it reminds me of. Yeah. Mm. You wouldn't wish love on anybody. I did my first <laughs> wedding the other recently. I don't think I told oh, yeah. you, but I loved that. Mm -hmm. This first wedding, and I said to them, you can't have me at a wedding because I'm going to tell, say how horrible love is. And they're like, that's exactly why we want you to speak. So I did this talk about the horror of love and then said, and this is why it's so beautiful and whatever, but. <laughs> um, Good. Good, thanks. So if I could jump in here, I, I'm thinking about this and I'm going to try to put it into the words uh, as best as I can. So is it safe to say that there's sort of a, a step that needs to be taken even after you've signified a trauma or like alphabetized it? Because I feel like there's still a way that we can affirm our lack in a way that still gives us like ironic distance from it. Um, and and actually, and, and we, we're not actually internalizing it. So it almost... I guess what I'm saying is, is there a step where it's like, okay, 
So maybe I've alphabetized something, but there seems to be this other step that needs to be taken to actually like internalize it. Cause I feel like we can, like, I feel, I feel like even, you know, uh, you know, my brother and I talk a lot about, you know, pyrotheology and psychoanalysis and stuff, but sometimes I find us going like, Oh, oh it's your lack, man. Like, uh, and it's almost like an ironic distance that actually almost seems to be a way of avoiding actually confronting it. So yeah. I just don't know if you had anything to say about that step yeah. from acknowledging to actually internalizing. No, hundred percent. That's great. I, I love that Shizek uses an example. I think it's very funny. I know Shizek's very funny guy, but it just, just um, says about how like pre psychoanalysis being quite in the popular imagination. If somebody came to the analyst office and they were acting out and being violent to people in the street and getting into fights. Um, the analyst might say, well, you know, tell us about your relationship with your mother. And the, the guy will start crying and go, yeah, no, I had this really uh, terrible relationship with my mother and father and all of that. But he says, nowadays, whenever someone comes in, the first thing they say is, oh, I had a terrible relationship with my father or whatever. Right? So they come in already with a psychoanalytic interpretation and it's doing no good at all. And so uh, Shizek says, so the best thing the analyst can do is like, stop blaming your father, you know, <laughs> like the exact opposite. It's like, take some responsibility because the, the idea, and I love this again about Bruce Fink. He wrote actually a two volume work called Against Understanding. And I really like this because I think Bruce Fink was getting very frustrated thinking people thought that psychoanalysis is about understanding, understanding yourself and why you do things. He goes like, no, understanding doesn't not hardly anything it does it can work for some people a little bit but as you said it's 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 actually you have to work you have to integrate it you have to work through it that's why in analysis you're with somebody you know you're you're actually transferring those early relationships into the clinic and you're 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 working it through in the clinic and so this comes to parotheology which is um and i need to get back to this mate because this is not it this is great. I love this. I love this. But parotheology at its best is a community where there is music and there is art and there is preaching and there are all of the elements that are not explaining this stuff, but are helping you to use the liturgical structure as a type of therapeutic uh, mirror. That becomes a mirror within which you see your own dividedness. Right. For anyone who's Lacanian and knows the analyst discourse, that's what I'm talking about. You, the, the, the liturgy exposes your, your own dividedness, your doubts, your ambiguity, your complexity, the broken relationships that you haven't been able to admit to yourself. All of that begins to come out through the liturgical structure. And it's contained by that structure. It's allowed to breathe. And you kind of do this work. And that is where the transformation is. So yeah, it's any, any interpretation, including this kind of paratheological one, if it's not being worked through in the transference of transformance art, then it's gonna be limited. I, um, I just have a personal experience to share. And that is <clears throat> that I think that's the reason my therapy had to evolve. Um, so it started in cognitive, very much just talking and understanding. It was getting me nowhere. I could talk myself out of anything. Um, and then, I, but then fortunately, I moved through different therapists. They were all Jungian and they were wonderful, but different approaches. And the approaches that worked with me very predictively were um, 
imagination. So active imagination, um, guided imagery, and art therapy. And, and that was when I started to integrate, as you say, the experience. And, um, and I think there's a mystical aspect of this. I just listened last night to a lecture by Jerry Wright, and he's looking for a, a new psychological mysticism. And, and I think that's an aspect of this that there, there needs to be a, a, numin a numinous experience to it. And you, you start to talk about it when you talk about transformance art and tr transformance, transformance um, like in performances and things like that there has to be that numinous experience of awakening um, in order to, to grasp it, I think, in, based on my experience, I think. Yeah, Thanks. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leigh. And I totally agree. And like, this is why I love, this is why theology is so important to me. Like, one of the reasons is theology, like psychoanalysis, is a theory and a practice. It has a theory and a technology. The technology is Sunday morning. The theory is, you know, they're talking about God or whatever. And in, in parotheology, there's a, there's a theory, and we explore a lot of that theory here in these classes. And I think that's very important because it's very important because I think uh, whether or not parotheology is radical theology is right or not, let's pretend it is for a second, but it's not, it's not really out there very much. So I want to get the theory out there because we're talking about a new form of church we're talking about a form of church that's that's connected with what exists but that's doing something maybe a little bit a little bit different so there's the, the 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 theory but there's also the practice and the practice was is first and foremost really that's how i started 11 years of community work before writing a book and doing this in person and in in a world where and some of us have done some reading groups on Gabriel Marcel, and I think you have enjoyed that. Gabriel Marcel is a beautiful writer who, he, as a Christian existentialist, wrote beautifully against the mechanization of and the technologicalization of contemporary world, which reducing human beings to functions, right? And he wrote beautifully against that, incredibly intelligently against that. And um, basically, one of his arguments was the church for him is the place where we touch that non-reductive aspect of reality and of ourselves because we can all too easily in our society reduce ourselves to function we treat our, we treat everybody as a function whenever i go into a shop the person is just there so that i can buy the product you know i don't see them as a human being they're just there that they're like a machine you know and that's fine because that's how we have to live but but if we don't have a space where we're encountering this other dimension. And that's partly what I think the theological practice is, is once a week, we go to a space where we um, open ourselves up to the real and um, that dimension is, and that's deeply important. Hey, I just have a quick question. Um, just thinking about your comment about how um, in physics, they're trying to measure the real versus in uh, the psychoanalytic, uh, they're trying to change it. And just thinking about, you know, this acts, aspect of art and, you know, liturgy, having that encounter for change. I don't know if I'm getting exactly right what you're saying. Um, and, but it, yeah, having that space for change to happen. Um, 
I'm just curious about the slipperiness of the real, right? Like, and as we, I'm just, as you step forward to change this thing that we can't really grasp, like what makes us think that we can actually change it, you know? And just thinking about like the role like of language or time or process, like, and how these all kind of are our tools to try to grasp that slippery real uh, thing. Like, I don't know, I'm, my head's still kind of spinning around how to hold that definition of real mm -hmm. um, in terms of its practicality. And uh, I'm just curious if you have any comments to that piece, like how do we practically hold this thing that isn't really a thing? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. No, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. You know, the, the the simple answer, which is fascinating. I would love you. Know, this is and this is important for Paul. I want to maybe connect it with politics as well. But is it sometimes analysts talk about how a true interpretation is one that works, and like and by working, what they kind of mean is. Um, it creates a shift. Uh, so it hits, and, and they would say then it, it hit the real. It's not like a relativism as, you know, say whatever, see what works. It's, it's more the interpretation worked if it, it hits the real in that it, sh it shifts something. So for example, give me an example, yeah. Um, well, with fixations that I mentioned earlier um, and repetition compulsions that seem to be revolving around something that's unspoken, something that is distorts language. Um, that's why, by the way, you ask for people to free associate. It's precisely because they can't, right? As soon as you ask somebody to free associate, it's not long before they trip up, before they go silent, before their mind goes blank. <laughs> if you're able to free associate, that's a sign that you're kind of healthy. It's like people who say, you know, I find it hard to meditate. It's like, yeah, no, it's because if you're able to meditate, that shows you're probably in a healthy place, right? So free association, the point is, well, you can't, of course you can't free associate. <laughs> you're going to hit the real. You're going to hit the real really quick. Um, and, but, so let's take an example of, and it's maybe controversial, maybe not, but if, if you look at contemporary society and you look at anything like two sides against each other um, and, and different kind of like opposing groups that are an explosions of protest and explosions of violence that are, on the, that are broadly split between two sides, oppositional politics, right? Oppositional politics. Um, the real is not, on one side or the other, or in some way in which we can unify the two. The real is the trauma that generated these two narratives. And, and the, the person who's seeking the real is going, what is it that's generated these various narratives that, that, that are existing that are actually not opposed, they are interconnected, which is a politics of contradiction, a politics in which Crazily, you think two sides, there's nothing similar to them, their enemies are actually intertwined in some ways. How are the Republicans intertwined with the Democrats? How are the Democrats intertwined with the Republicans? How are these groups that we would say are complete opposites actually somehow connected? And they're, they're, I would say, you know, they're connected by the real. And if you go, this is the controversial, but if you go with the idea that the real of our contemporary economic system is surplus value, right? Which is the signifier of, I would say, is the signifier of the lack within the political structures where basically people are first alienated. And by alienated, I mean, even if you have a job where you're well-paid, 
you might have a job where you don't like what you do, right? So even if you're well-paid, you're still spending eight hours of your day, five days a week doing something that you'd prefer not to do. And then most people aren't even well-paid. So not only are you not doing something you love, you've got no, no ownership or connection with the company you're working for, and you're not getting any money. And all of the economic anxiety, all of the issues that come out of that, if that's the name like a signifier for some sort of like tr trauma that's at the that's at the center of this economic system then you go the answer is to um double twist that is the, the answer is to kind of like uh do something about that real and then you will see a transformation of society like but is that is that we should maybe stick a little bit longer with this analogy, but do you think, is that getting somewhere in terms of what, how the real functions and what, what, what it means when you hit the real is that you can actually change? Yeah, I, I uh, no, and it may, as soon as you're talking, I was, it reminded me of your previous talks on like symptoms um, and how um, we're largely navigating world of symptoms that point us to something deeper right that yeah. uh that contradiction um and just how that plays out um but yeah i yeah yeah because he, here's the thing here's the thing about surplus value that i've never said before but i think i'm only getting it now but it's partly surplus value is the naming of something that doesn't exist as in surplus value is the value that's created by workers beyond what they're getting paid is it's like a creation of value but it's a creation of value that they don't get to enjoy it's a so it's a weird signifier of this extra value that at least the workers you know don't don't get so it's kind of naming a type of nothingness a type of lack that causes all sorts of problems and all sorts of antagonisms and and the but the idea is how do you enjoy surplus value well and I, by the way, I'm playing fast and loose here, so forgive me, but enjoying surplus value societally would be where we all get to participate in the surplus value, right? We all get to enjoy this lack that's an, an excess, because that's the thing about trauma. Trauma is a lack that's an excess. It's a, it's a nothing that creates. So surplus value is this kind of loss, this... this um, but the, that creates extra value in the world and enjoying it might mean a political system where we all, you know, where that, where that surplus value is enjoyed by everybody in the society that creates it. There you go. Bruce, oh, I'm sorry. Ah. Bruce Fink had a great phrase for that instead of like enjoying it. He said, what, traversing the fantasy. That's yeah. just a phrase. That... Oh, you went silent. Or was that what you wanted to say? Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting. I thought you were done. Sorry. No, no, I wasn't done. No, go for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all right. Were you sorry. just excited? You just got very excited about that. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I get excited. That's the jouissance, jouissance, yeah. you know? And then it's, uh, yeah, now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's how I spend most of my time. So I'm glad you can feel that too. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else want to jump in? We could talk about traversing the fantasy. Although that's a biggie. Maybe we'll do that in another coffin concepts, but maybe we might touch on it. But anyone else want to jump in in the meantime? Okay, I'll say something about traversing the fantasy because I'm interested in this. What, what does that weird comment mean? Um, you find this stuff interesting. I mean, I know some of you do. Um, uh, 
you know, here, here's the thing. If you talk at, at, a, at, a, at its most basic, the object of our desire, we desire the desire of those we desire. That's, that's what object A is. Lacan has this concept, as many of you know, object A, which is kind of like, right, what the first thing you desire pretty much, let's say it's the mother, the mother other, right? Their desire, you want to be desired by the one that you desire. But their desire, um, as Matt, you know, is the, the mother's desire goes to something else. Your mother doesn't just desire you. And if they do just desire you, that's going to cause all sorts of problems, right? So, and if they don't desire you at all, it's going to cause all sorts of problems. But the mother has other desires, other, that, another part, a partner, a job, TV, whatever. But what we start to desire then is what the mother desires. You know, now our desire is we're looking at where the desire, what it lights, what it lands on. We, so we find what to desire through the desire of the one we desire, which is very, you know, Girardian. Um, so interestingly, object A, our fantasies, are generally how we think our earliest caregivers desired us. How could we be desirable to them? So even in our sexual fantasies and all of that, you actually discover something very simple about um, uh, uh, the, how, how you felt the other desired you. So um, uh, I know somebody who's like sister was always kind of like, you know, she was older and she was always kind of like laughing at him and kind of humiliating them with, with her friends. But he was, he was around, wanted to hang out with his older sister, you know. So in his sexual desires, you know, being laughed at by women is a sexually in, enjoyable thing. Because, because that's how he, he, he was desired as a child, you know. The desire is uh, manifesting in the fantasy. Um, traversing the fantasy means, in, in one sense, these are complicated concepts, but in one sense means that you don't overcome that but you subjectify it, subjectifies it. You kind of, you don't, you don't find it um, alienating. You don't find it, you, you kind of, you, you kind of basically put yourself in the place. Oh, I'll give you a perfect example. The Breakfast Club. It's a brilliant film. I want to do it at Exposure. The Breakfast Club is a brilliant movie. And one of the reasons is oh, these kids who are all in different tribal identities, the jock, the nerd, the, the, the homecoming queen, the goth, um, did I get them all? Don't know. Um, they, they all have the, the, their different tribes and they're all together. And these, these tribal identities have kind of been forced upon them by their parents, by their upbringing. And then they find that they're all lacking subjects, right? They're all, they all have trauma they all, and they're unified not by their differences. Of course they're not. In fact, that's the whole point at the beginning. They all kind of hate each other or, or admire each other or all of the, what's called the imaginary, it's the level of admiring, desiring, hating, loving, all of that. But then eventually they're all smoking weed, I think upstairs, all realizing they're traumatized. And the beautiful, I love the trauma of the goth, if you've seen it. It's amazing. Where she's always talking about the traumas of how crazy and horrible a life she has. And then she admits her trauma, which is her parents are just mediocre. She had a completely normal life, you know, and that was the, that was the trauma, you know? <laughs> it was, um, so they all admit their lack. They all unify around the lack, so very power theological. They unify around the lack. And then at the end, they go, well, what do we do now? Because tomorrow we go back to school or on Monday we go back to school and we're still, I'm still a jock, you're still the rebel. That was the one I missed. 
uh, you know, you're still the nerd, you're still the homecoming queen. Like, do I laugh at you when I pass you in the hall? You know, maybe I'll say hi, but as soon as I walk past, my friends are going to go here. Why are you talking to them? Am I going to throw you under the bus? And they talk about that and it doesn't get resolved from what I remember, but then they just leave. But the feeling is that in a sense, they are embracing their identities. The identities that were thrust upon them at the beginning don't change at the end, but somehow they are able to, one, affirm them, two, affirm their, their lack. And, and those two things are able to hopefully mean they're healthier people on the other side. But that's what traversing the fantasy is for me. It's almost like it's accepting who you are. It's saying yes to your desire. It's saying yes to your jouissance. It's um, subjectivizing it, making it work for you rather than against you. That's traversing the fantasy. Uh, Zizek writes in the essay I put in the chat on it, uh, it's like the subject making itself its own cause. The subject becomes its own cause. Would you say that's kind of, okay. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah so that's a beautiful way of saying it. I'm so glad um, what I said uh, rest <laughs> connected with what, the way Shizek said it, because if, if, uh, if it didn't, Shizek would be right. But yeah, I think that's basically, he's put in a nutshell what, what I was trying to say there. Yeah.